This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. The old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. Um, with the opening of the new year, uh, we see a very familiar sight, uh, which is a rabid uh, right-wing mob attacking uh, the capital of um, uh, a nation, uh, trying to uh, stop uh, the um, uh, processing of a um a democratically decided election uh, and this is happening in brazil and many people are seeing echoes of uh what happened in the united states uh almost exactly two years ago um and i think uh, uh there's definite connections uh some of the people who are uh supporting the coup uh also uh were in the engineers of the january 6th attack um and uh, the other aspect that's kind of interesting is almost the dog that didn't bark. That um, I, I mean, I think like everyone knows that the United States has a very um, poor record in Latin America, uh, and in particular has often supported uh, right-wing coups. Uh, but this time, uh, Joe Biden came out of the gate uh, with a very strong statement, um, not just deploring the violence, but uh, 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 stating that the election had been democratically decided. Uh, this is an election that saw the victory of um, a socialist candidate. Uh, and this is something that you know one would not have expected, uh, certainly from Donald Trump, who is a fan of Bolsonaro, but uh, maybe even not from certain previous uh, democratic administrations, uh, which have been among those who have supported right-wing coups. Um, and so I, I think this is a good opportunity to think about Joe Biden's foreign policy, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, and to do so, I'm very happy to have on um, uh, two distinguished guests, um, uh, Matthew Das um, and Stephen uh, Wertheim, who uh, wrote um, a piece in uh, The New Republic, uh, that is a survey of Biden's foreign policy. Um, and uh, uh, Matt is a scholar, visiting scholar of American state craft program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Um, he's also known as the uh, former foreign policy advisor to Senator Bernie Sanders. Um, and uh, Stephen is a senior fellow in the American state craft program uh, at Carnegie as well. Uh, and a lecturer at the Yale Law School and Catholic University. Um, and he's the author of a very highly regarded book, Tomorrow the World. 
Um, so uh, maybe let's start with the uh, uh, Brazil. Um, Matt, am I fair to say that uh, there has been uh, a shift in American foreign policy in thinking about democracy promotion in um, uh, Latin America? I mean, I think that is fair to say. I mean, we can certainly say there is a shift in in U.S. administration policy toward Brazil and 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 toward Latin America. I think a bit, and we should talk about the way that fits into the broader kind of democracy versus autocracy uh, framework. But yes, certainly the way that that President Biden and his team have responded, um, not only after the election, not only to to you know yesterday's attack on government buildings, but also in the lead up to the elections uh, last fall. Um, and, and I think that is that is very commendable. I mean, there that's certainly, you know, obviously different from from President Trump, who is a huge fan of Bolsonaro, and, and that is mutual. Bolsonaro clearly modeled himself after Donald Trump in a lot of ways, but it's also a departure from President Barack Obama, um, who who took who kind of kept Lula at an arm's length um and did the same with a lot of kind of left-leaning uh, movements and and governments um in, in Latin America. But I think the Biden administration, to its credit, has understood to some extent that one cannot be neutral here um, between kind of even if one, you know, if the Biden administration doesn't identify as kind of socialist or or, or democratic socialist or, or or whatever, they understand the other side, the other choice is a corrupt, authoritarian, anti-democratic, illiberal movement and, and, and leaders. So I think they deserve credit for, you know, the outreach, you know, the signals that they sent leading up to the, the election uh, in the fall, sending Secretary of Defense Austin, um, CIA Director uh, Bill Burns, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, for various consultations with their counterparts, making clear a very simple message: is that we will, you know, will we support a free and fair election? We are watching this very closely, and you know, I do, you know, want to give some credit to my my former boss, Senator Bernie Sanders here. Too, someone who has who has you know always been supportive um, of, of of Lula's program. Um, just he he understands it, I think, quite correctly as a kind of labor oriented populism um, that with a lot of, of similarities to the program that, that that he supports, just in terms of promoting human dignity and real human security and and shared prosperity. Um, you know, but he did offer a resolution along with Senator Tim Kaine in the lead up to the election, just expressing the sense of the Senate, um, not a not support for Lula or any specific candidate, but support for free and fair elections and making clear that the U.S. Congress would not support continuing assistance um, to Brazil in the event of an undemocratic outcome or a military coup, um, making clear, kind of underlining the message that was being sent, I think, by the administration that the U.S.-Brazil relationship would suffer. Um, in the wake of any kind of anti-democratic activity. And I think that message was heard loud and clear. And the last point I'll make here is, you know, I think what we saw yesterday in Brazil was in, you know, different from January, similar, obviously, to January 6th. In some ways, you saw mobs ransacking government buildings, but it was also kind of more of a temper tantrum. There was really no thing, nothing that they were really going to be able to achieve, especially even though we did see a kind of troubling police security presence among the demonstrators, um, it, from the reporting I've seen, I think there may have been some expectation that the military um, would join with the protests. Um, they did not, clearly. And, and and I do think that is at least in part because of the message they received from all, all, all the various um, you know, uh, parts of the U.S. government. 
Yeah, no, I, I think that's uh, uh, a fair accounting. And um, maybe the where this takes us is um, the way in which Biden is different. Um, and this is something a little bit unexpected. I mean, Biden has been around a long time. He has been a kind of pillar of the sort of, you know, American foreign policy establishment. Um, he has uh, been a supporter of the Iraq war, for example. Uh, and I think there's a lot of fear of, among people on the left uh, that, you know, like uh, uh, a Biden presidency would be a return, you know, back to um, the Clinton-Obama era. And I think one of the uh, arguments that uh, you make in the, uh, your piece is that there has actually been um, a shift that uh, thanks in part to, you know, the strong showing Bernie Sanders had in two um, uh, presidential ca campaigns, uh, primaries in the Democratic Party, um, there's more of an awareness of a kind of left presence in the United States. And um, that, uh, but also more broadly, uh, Biden is aware of some of the changes that have happened in the world. And so maybe that's, um, uh, we can have a sort of, um, uh, Stephen, take that up a little bit, just in terms of like, how has Biden shifted um, American uh, foreign policy? Well, somebody who wrote quite critically about uh, the prospects for a Biden presidency during the 2020 primary campaign, you know, I think that uh, Biden deserves credit for reflecting where the Democratic Party has moved on foreign policy. And that was, uh, I think, a kind of consensus embodied in the Democratic platform of 2020, which Matt and I draw upon in our piece for the New Republic uh, to establish a kind of baseline to to evaluate Biden's foreign policy. Uh, it, it turned out that Biden was quite serious when he criticized uh, continuing the U.S. war effort in Afghanistan and surprised a lot of people by uh, completely withdrawing U.S. ground troops. Uh, that's a decision that, uh, you know, Matt and I think was the right decision, even if the way it was executed obviously was very wrenching. There was no really good way to to lose a war to the Taliban after 20 years, unfortunately. Uh, and uh, it was, I think, the right decision uh, for, on humanitarian grounds as well as strategic grounds for Biden to to pull the plug. And he's also diminished uh, drone strikes rather quietly. Uh, and we give him credit for for that. He's, uh, you know, returned to some, although we're quite critical of his uh, approach to uh, Yemen. You know, we do give him some credit for reengaging diplomatically. Uh, and we see a, a, a ceasefire that was achieved last year, continuing to tenuously hold uh, in that in that country. He's not the primary reason for that. Nevertheless, uh, a little bit of partial credit there. Uh, and I think he's also, just as he has on domestic policy, um, changed some of the conversation on foreign policy in general, uh, achieved uh, a negotiation of the global minimum tax, uh, which uh, now needs to be implemented by Congress. That's a that'll be a challenge. But, you know, I think he he and his administration deserve credit for uh, trying to turn the page on neoliberal globalization and try to refashion, you know, what a better still connected global economy can be that benefits uh, more working people in the United States and internationally. And then we also give him credit on on the war in Ukraine uh, for adopting an approach that has uh, avoided a direct conflict between the U.S. or NATO forces and, and and Russia, that's a conflict that, as Biden said, has to be avoided. But at the same time, something that's now kind of easy to take for granted, you know, mounted this surprisingly uh, uh, effective 
uh, effort to help Ukraine defend itself. Now, we don't know where that's going. And you know I think we all have concerns uh, about the end game because nobody really knows what the end game will be. So it could it couldn't turn uh, uh, catastrophic in the worst case. But so far, I, I certainly wouldn't want to rewind time and and fail to to provide this uh, you know country uh, saving support uh, to 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 Ukraine as he's done in in the past year. So these are all you know real bright spots. And on each of those issues, if you think about what would it look like if uh, Donald Trump had had been president, not to mention the issue of Brazil. You know, I, I I think it's uh it's a very positive thing that 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 Biden has has been in the White House for the for the past several years. Now we have a lot of criticisms uh, that we can get to too, and I think despite all of these bright areas, we're still worried that Biden could hand to his successor or to himself in two years a U.S. foreign policy that's more costly more risky, more dangerous than the one he inherited just because conditions in the world uh, have have gotten considerably worse. Yeah, actually, let, let's take up th- that point before we get into a, a more sweeping uh, criticism of uh, some of Biden's uh, uh, failures. That um, And I think they, uh, we can bring uh, Matt back into this uh, in terms of, um, I think one of the points uh, that you make in the, the piece is that um, um, Biden's changes, uh, some of these changes, while they're welcome, they're very incremental rather than fundamental. And so uh, what you I think you mean by an incremental change is that these are reversible or he hasn't like consolidated uh, a real break. Do you want to like talk a little bit about that, Matt? And then we can return to Stephen for like, you know, maybe uh, some of the real uh, uh, worrying, worrisome stuff. Right. Um, well, I think, you know, what, he, you know, what Stephen said and what we write in the piece about, you know, the war on terror, diminishing drone strikes and stuff like that is that is commendable. That is good. It, it is good that we are killing fewer people with flying robots, but they have done this and, and, and they have, you know, we think, correctly assess that you're able to make these changes quietly and avoid having to spend a lot of time and energy and political capital getting into fights, you know, dealing with criticisms from demagogues and hawks and all the usual who try to kind of make, you know, kind of, kind of, um, you, you know, political grandstanding around the global war on terror. But at the same time, if you don't engage in and win those public political fights, you are not establishing a new and durable political consensus. Um, you are not getting political buy-in from the American people, from Congress, um, from the kind of foreign policy establishment for this new approach. And that is you we there's no way around that. Um, because if you simply avoid that, you are leaving these tools and policies um and uh, and authorities in place uh, for future administrations. And we don't have to imagine what that future administration would look like. It could look like the previous one or worse. Um, and again, I don't downplay, I don't think we downplay the, the political challenge of establishing that new consensus, but but I think it's absolutely necessary to create to make sure that any positive change outlasts one presidency. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I, I think that the actual um, record of the uh, Obama administration perhaps uh, 
shows some of the pro dangers of um, not being able to win buy-in because I think uh, a lot of uh, positive things that Obama did uh, were uh, quickly reversed by uh, Trump in terms of you know Cuba and uh, yeah. Iran and uh, um, uh, in other issues. Uh, so, so to return to Stephen, I mean, aside from you know like this this failure to like you know get buy-in to like really um, make a clean break that you know cannot be reversed, I, I think that you know your your article points to like something even more worrisome, which is that there, there are actual like you know substantial policy changes that Biden is implementing that, you know, like, you know, uh, um, not only need more support, but actually like, are, you know, are even the, the reverse that are actively, you know, like bad or the wrong turn. Do you want to, do you want to outline what some of those are? Yeah. I mean, a big miss opportunity came on the uh, Iran nuclear deal, which uh, a whole lot of administration officials had said they would uh, cleanly try to reenter and then didn't do that. Including and, President uh, Biden. <laughs> including President Biden. There you go. So, so, you know, I think there was some hope of a quite dramatically better approach to the Middle East that has at this point really not panned out. Uh, there's been, I think, some internal debate in the administration, uh, and that has settled on a return to a, a kind of normalcy uh, with the usual suspects in, in, the, in the region. So that's a huge disappointment. But to your question, Jeet, I think where you know we're seeing movement in the wrong direction is on China above all, and this is, you know, perhaps the most consequential bilateral relationship in the 21st century. And you know, here, um, even as the U.S. and China were um, uh, experiencing increased tensions over the past several years, um, the issue of Taiwan had not been at the center of that. And I'm afraid that President Biden himself deserves uh, some responsibility for um, making the situation more dangerous, you know, in a series of uh, supposed gaffes, uh, which are probably not, in fact, gaffes. The president has uh, misstated U.S. policy, claimed that the United States has an obligation to defend Taiwan from China, that in any case, he would defend Taiwan uh, from a Chinese attack by sending U.S. troops. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.
Oops. And moreover, that the issue of Taiwan's ultimate uh, de jure political status, uh, that is whether Taiwan is independent, is up for the Taiwanese to decide. This is all quite contrary to the longstanding one China policy that succeeded in keeping the peace across the Taiwan Strait uh, for several decades, as Biden well knows as a senator who actually voted for the Taiwan Relations Act and and once wrote an op-ed uh, criticizing George W. Bush for making some similar statements on Taiwan uh, in, a, in a Washington Post piece titled Not So Deft on Taiwan. So I would just turn that around on on President Biden. And I think what you know this is contributing to is uh, a fast growing uh, consensus, at least in the beltway, I'm not so sure about the general public, but in the Beltway, the consensus is that the United States uh, has a new enemy, and that's the number two power of the world, which, by the way, is the power that most needs to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions because it's the number one carbon emitter. Uh, and and you know the, we're going to see the Republican Party, as it uh, takes over the new Congress, uh, really try to amp up. Uh, our fears of of China and move us closer to what uh, would be a probably catastrophic uh, war uh, between the United States and and China, most likely flashpoint being Taiwan. So the one China policy has been working. Uh, why would we want to erode that? You know, I think that the president's trying to obtain some extra deterrence, um, but uh, I think what he's doing is actually making deterrence weaker by. Uh, uh, making Beijing wonder whether the United States is actually going to stick to the one China policy in the near future and in the medium term. And if they conclude that the United States is trying to uh, make Taiwan permanently separate from mainland China, then I afra I'm afraid that uh, their red line may have been crossed and we could be heading for, for conflict. So, you know, this is the area where I think uh, even though there's not an ongoing conflict and it it doesn't get the same kind of level of intensity at the grassroots, understandably, as issues like the war in Yemen, this is an issue where I'm I'm most concerned with the administration's policy. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up China because I think it raises some interesting uh, dilemmas or uh, tensions within the left. Because um, I mean, it used to be, uh, you know, that the 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 greatest uh, advocates for integration uh, with China came from uh, the centrist, the center right, and the center left of the sort of you know the old Washington consensus, uh, where you know integrating China into globalization um, was seen as a, a worthwhile uh, goal. And the critique of China policy came, you know, from uh, Matt's old boss Bernie Sanders, uh, as well as Elizabeth Warren and others. Um, you know, in terms of you know like. Uh, wanting any integration of China to be done like, you know, on a, um, with much more uh, concern for labor rights and for environmental rights. Um, but it seems like now, you know, in some ways, we're seeing a maybe a, a reversal where like the 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 uh, the old you know, Washington consensus um, uh, has turned against China and is now using, you know, legitimate concerns people have about China as a way of uh, yeah, as, uh, supporting a new a new Cold War. Um, uh, Matt, do you think that's a, a sort of fair characterization of the dynamics at work? No, I, I totally agree um, with that. And, you know, I think Senator Sanders wrote this in a piece for Foreign Affairs uh, in, in, in early 2021, making exactly that point is, you know, 20 years ago, there was a, an unassailable consensus that, you know, integrating China into the global economic order, bringing it into WTO would, would, would you know, 
you know, would not only make lots more Chinese people rich, um, it would eventually inevitably liberalize China politically. Um, and now the the consensus has shifted 180 degrees. The unassailable consensus in Washington is that China is um, a, a growing threat to the United States-led order, and we must find ways to contain and confront China. Um, and you know, maybe we should just pause for a moment and 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 question this new consensus, as we should have questioned the previous consensus, and ask like, what are we trying to achieve? What are some of the factors? that are involved in, in China's policy and behavior and its goals? How does it see the world? How does it perceive the United States policy? That's not to say that we are necessarily at fault. Um, there are choices that the United States has made uh, for certain reasons, um, but we need to cast a much more skeptical eye on anything that promotes itself as as the new unassailable consensus, because I think you're right, the, the critique of the of neoliberalism, the critique of kind of WTO led export growth, um, the idea that it's going to you know make you know huge sums of money for multinational corporations, but don't worry, everyone will benefit. That was always bullshit, and it, and the left is the one that has been pointing this out and sounding the alarm in these issues, you know, as far back as the 1999 WTO protests and IMF World Bank protests, but even farther than that. Um, you know, when we understand that that you know those protests marked the breakthrough of a global South-led movement that had been sounding the alarm on these policies for a very long time, um, so you know, just the point I'm getting at is like, yeah, we should be very cautious as we see a stampede toward you know, kind of a new shared approach that must not be questioned, and unfortunately, we see that um, with regard to China. Now, I think you know the Biden administration. Their behavior and their rhetoric, as we note in the piece, are in some ways telling two different stories, right? It is very good that the president of the United States constantly makes clear that we do not seek a new Cold War. We do not seek conflict. We have to find areas of cooperation because that is true. We absolutely must try and find areas of cooperation on share, shared challenges like climate, like pandemics, just to name two. Um, but the actual policy is very clearly um, leading us to a situation where we're going to have competing blocks, power blocks, um, something that we've seen in 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 the past, and it did not work work out very well. Um, so I think we, we we need to do what we can to ask some serious questions and hit the brakes um, on this new this this new industry. I mean, and by industry, I mean you know the new the new China threat industry. Um, the, the, and the last point I'll make about this, and we've seen this with regard to China, but also with regard to Russia, if you are making these kinds of great power conflict arguments, there is really nothing, that's a loophole that you can drive any policy through. And we, we see that with regard to the Middle East, right? Uh, particularly Saudi Arabia. Um, uh, President Biden as a candidate and continuing now uh, makes a lot of claims about support for human rights. Um, those claims are not reflected at all in their policy. And when they are asked about this, um, they'll offer, well, Ukraine changed everything or, you know, we need to, we're competing for influence with China. And so, again, there's nothing you really can't justify um, if if that's your reasoning. And that is how they justify, for example, the, you know, the kind of relationship um, with Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia, someone that, you know, that, that candidate Biden promised to make, quote, a pariah. Um, but of course, that has not happened. And one of the main justifications that they will give is like, well, you know, Russia is trying to build a relationship. China is trying to build a relationship. We And we need to stay in the game. Let me just add one one point on China is that the 
the old engagement consensus had something in common with the new containment consensus. The engagement consensus said, we recognize that China is growing in power and we really need China to look like the United States, to be a liberal capitalist democracy. And we need China to be a quote unquote responsible stakeholder that is part of the US-led liberal international order and follows the rules as we see them and is our kind of deputy sheriff in the world uh, enforcing you know, US priorities. Was that a realistic prospect? So it's no surprise that when China reached a certain level of power and turned out to have other ideas about what it wanted in the world and about its own uh, domestic politics, uh, that the US position shifted to containment because somewhat implicit in the original consensus was the idea that the United States can't really live in a world with a China that's anything but a kind of mini United States uh, that that follows what the United States wants. So, you know, I think it's quite um, uh, unfortunate that people have the idea that, you know, the sort of the old consensus was uh, was something totally different from the new one, uh, and everything about China policy needs to run together. Well, we you know we we once had corporate led economic integration, and now maybe we need to have no economic relations with China. Well, that doesn't follow logically. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, I think the continuity you're pointing to is the the idea that uh, both China policies were aimed at maintaining uh, American hegemony, global hegemony. Uh, uh, and in some ways, I mean, I'll put an idea forward and uh, maybe this is something we can end on, because I think that this points to maybe the sort of sharpest critique one could make of Biden, um, which is that, like, uh, from my perspective, it, it seems like, um, play, uh, you know, playing up China as a threat um, and, you know, like orienting policy towards um, uh, China is actually uh, doing something that Biden denies he's doing, which is, is creating a context for a new Cold War. And it seems to me that the the impulse behind that is this kind of like, you know, the Cold War is the only way that the American uh, foreign policy establishment knows how to do foreign policy. Like if you can have a Cold War size enemy, you have an enemy that's, you know, that's as dangerous as the old Soviet Union or as China, then you can build a foreign policy consensus and you can overcome a lot of internal domestic disagreements about policy and right. you can get you know Republicans and Democrats on board. So it seems like, you know, um, whether willfully or not, like, you know, we're heading towards the re a recreation of a Cold War in order to overcome, you know, uh, domestic weakness, uh, right. uh, domestic internal domestic strife. Uh, I'll put that, that's my point of view. <laughs> but I want to put it, just uh, have uh, both of you yeah. kind of like end on what you think about that. No, 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 I would agree 100%. And again, this is, I think, a point Senator Sanders made in that foreign affairs piece and in other other areas, and it, it applies to China, it applies to, to to Russia, Ukraine, it applies to the war on terror. I mean, people explicitly use the kind of war on terror. It's like, oh, good, now we have this kind of unifying concept, you know, to, to rescue us from the kind of directionless, you know, you know, you know, we lack, you know, we lost our big enemy in the early 90s. And what were we doing? But now this is this is 
you know, something that gives us new purpose and we can forge a new kind of bipartisan uh, unity around. And that was a disaster. I mean, again, I feel kind of crazy having to make this point. But I mean, look at the consequences of the global war on terror, not just for the communities that suffered at the pointy end of it, but the impact on our own politics, you know, is a point I've made and my friend Spencer Ackerman made very, very effectively and rigorously in his excellent book, Reign of Terror. The war on terror uh, helped deliver the Trump movement. Um, it helped deliver authoritarianism to a lot of countries. It will do the same with if we if we seek to forge unity around conflict with China or with Russia. Stephen, you want to add to that? No, I share I share all of these concerns. I think there is a kind of fantasy um, in Washington and in some members of the Biden administration that we can get away from the era of forever wars by reconstituting a cold war but this time with perhaps a less menacing actor and we can we know how to deal with that we can control the situation uh we're not going to have these long grinding conflicts like iraq and afghanistan yeah there'll be a risk of world war three but it probably won't happen and uh in the meantime you know we'll have these uh domestic benefits right the the three decades of uh shared prosperity and relative stability uh, that uh, uh, coincided with the early Cold War. It's a really risky proposition for the reasons Matt said. I mean, our actual experience, if you look after 9-11, uh, there was lots of talk about how the country had come together and put aside its, its disunity. Uh, and now there would be all these domestic benefits to keeping the enemy over there so we don't have to fight it at home. And we got Donald Trump and January 6th. So, you know, which is the correct position? I'm more inclined to say, you know, we should see the China threat for what it is. China has a lot of objectionable practices. We shouldn't overlook those. I'm actually glad that now American politics is more attuned to, to some of those practices like economic coercion and human rights abuses than it was a decade ago. I actually don't think, you know, the old consensus got it, got it, got it right, as I've, as I've indicated, but uh, on, on the other hand, uh, you know, we can move very quickly into an overly securitized U.S.-China relationship uh, that uh, that backfires on us domestically, just as the early Cold War uh, hurt us, too, you know, with M M McCarthyism and and all the rest. So I do think it's true, as you said, Jeet, that members of the administration are genuine when they say they don't want a Cold War with China. Uh, and they want to keep competition from veering into conflict. But I worry that they don't understand what's necessary uh, in order to achieve those goals. And the fact is that the Republican Party has now made it almost a part of the identity of the Republican Party uh, to be not just anti-China, but to position the Chinese Communist Party as uh, you know uh, the the great evil that needs to be combated. So, if you thought that it didn't work well for Democrats uh, to be the yes, but caucus on the global war on terror, I don't think it's going to work well for Democrats to be the yes, but caucus on the China Cold War. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's a, a very well uh, made point. And uh, to, um, uh, I, I mean, in some ways, 
both the global war on terror and the earlier Cold War show um, ways in which uh, threat inflation uh, just um, uh, causes domestic problems. It, it really emboldens the domestic right and gives them a vocabulary that they can use. Um, so I, I, I'm, uh, well, I want to end on that note, uh, which is a, uh, perhaps a, a worrisome one, but uh, I, I think um, is congruent with your article, which, uh, you know, does laud Biden for his genuine positive achievements, but also, you know, introduces some real concern. Uh, and I, I want to, again, thank uh, Matt and Stephen for being here uh, for uh, uh, a very uh, incisive conversation. Uh, Thanks, Jeet. Thank you so much. You. Okay, bye. Indeed. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.